0: We're in chapter 2, starting at verse 18. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. ...because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me.
1: Do open up Philippians chapter 2, and if you have a church Bible, it's page 1179. It's a funny passage to preach on. I remember a, a preacher who I absolutely revered and thought was one was the best I'd ever known... He said to me, I never know quite what to do with this passage when I'm preaching through Philippians. And funny enough, another preacher who I also looked up to uh, as just, you know, sort of great master of the text. Um, He admitted that, like me, he was was preaching through Philippians in a university term. And uh, term had fallen so that he finished whatever term it was at verse 18 and then, so he was going to resume, a bit like me after Christmas. Um, but what uh, he'd done was just to leave his passage out altogether. And then he said, no one noticed. <laughs> yeah, it's a funny one. It, 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 it's sort of a mixture of things. These relationships, these travel plans. There's a certain amount that needed to be communicated in writing the letter about who was going to uh, go where and at what time. But there's also a lot more than that going on. And actually, the very conventional way to preach it from people who do try to preach this text is, I think, quite rightly to see that as well as Paul communicating about travel plans and people kind of buzzing backwards and forwards, um, he's doing two things. He's doing that, but he's also building on a theme that we've been tracing for some Sundays of the need for Christ-like thinking And living for Christian people to live like Jesus because Jesus has lived like that for them and on the on the basis of the Son of God who's come from heaven become a man died on a cross been raised again entered our hearts and lives with forgiveness and new life through the Holy Spirit on the basis of that for Christian people to live the same way because that's what the gospel requires and in fact, to do anything else would be completely out of step with having Jesus in your heart. And so I, I think the conventional way is to say, okay, so he's got his travel plans and these bits and pieces about Timothy and Epaphroditus. But as well as that, he is choosing to use them as further examples of Christ-like living. And so the way that kind of approach tends to go, and i preached it this way myself, is to say, look at Timothy. Paul said there was no one like Timothy. Look at Timothy and 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 become more like him. And then there's Epaphroditus. And if Timothy was known for self-denying, personal, sacrificial service, well, we come to Epaphroditus, and it's self-denying, sacrificial service of others, plus almost dying, and be like Epaphroditus. And the congregation thinks, well. What does it mean, then, to be like Epaphroditus and almost die? And I think what I've missed when I've preached it that way before, there's nothing wrong with that, it's just something that is there which adds something to that approach. and makes it a little bit more than having two first-century superheroes held up who we will tend to think, well, that's absolutely amazing, but I couldn't imagine being anything quite like them. And one of the missing ingredients, I think, is just the amount of joy in this passage. Now, our Bibles um, make a very firm paragraph break with verse 18, and in putting a heading in that bold type in there, which is not in the original, it makes it even more of a kind of division. And I know that some of the ancient versions, uh, the ancient manuscripts, also would have a paragraph division here. But thematically, it may well be that verse 18 is a kind of hinge verse, or a kind of verse that looks backwards and forwards. So you should be glad and rejoice with me, he says. one of the arguments for seeing it that way is, um, he goes on in chapter 3 and verse 1, which we'll come to next term, God willing. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. And then the sprinkling through the text of references to joy and to gladness. And so my my offering this morning is to um, find in here a bit more than simply a challenge to Christian heroism, much as I think that's a very good thing and I think that will come through. I think that here there is an invitation to find more joy. And if that thought, and indeed the slide style and background, seem familiar to you, that's because that is happening all the way through Philippians. And I deliberately styled this as an invitation to more joy. Because a very forceful command, be more joyful, will tend to have the opposite effect. And even when joy is commanded in Scripture, the voice of the Lord Jesus in commanding joy is a voice of invitation and welcome and a beckoning of us into a place where He is to join Him in His joy. Paul is inviting them in verse 18 to be glad and rejoice with Him. He's in a place of rejoicing in spite of being in prison. And he's inviting them in as well. And it seems to me that that is a really helpful way into this text this morning. To be opening ourselves to let the Holy Spirit find more joy. And joy in specific ways. First of all, it's an invitation to find joy in the work of God in people like Timothy. Timothy to find joy in God's work in people like Timothy. So let's get a little bit into the uh, detail of what he says about Timothy in verses 19 to 24. Paul has this hope, which is a hope in Christ, so it's all shaped by his sense that Jesus completely controls his destiny, and that gives him optimism, I hope in the Lord Jesus, to send Timothy to you soon. So this is just saying, I'm going to send him Soon, He says, that I may also be cheered when I receive news about you. So it sounds as though he's going to send Timothy to them in a bit, and then expect Timothy to come back. And his expectation is that when Timothy comes back, that will raise Paul's spirits. It's very beautiful, isn't it? But then he says some things about Timothy that are very, very well worth noting. And as we read these, we see it as a great kind of model and example for us as Christians and for all of us in the different ways in which we exert leadership. And all of us are leaders in one way or another, informally or formally. It helps us think both about personal discipleship, but also in any leadership role God gives us. Now, we just need to remind ourselves about who Timothy is. He had been brought up in uh, eastern Turkey Uh, He had a uh, Gentile father and a Jewish mother. And he had the privilege of being nurtured all the way from the cradle by his mother and his grandmother. And they brought him up and they'd sung, I'm, I'm imagining slightly here, but they'd sung scriptural songs over him in the cradle. And what we know is that from a young age, the Word of God had just been woven into his life. And it's a wonderful model of Christian uh, parenting for us now. He'd been there, and uh, uh, Paul had been in those towns, and then he'd come back again, and in Acts chapter 16, Paul had recognised the work that God was doing in Timothy, and just seen him as someone who could join him, who he could invest in, and who could be a help to him uh, in his missions. And so Paul joins Uh, Timothy joins Paul as part of Paul's mission team. He's been with him for a number of years, and he's been a very significant help to him. Look how he describes him. He just shows here a recognition of the work of God in Timothy. I've no one else like him. Now, when you hear that, you kind of think, gosh, well, he must have had... Amazing gifts, then. Must have been outstandingly intelligent. Must have had a, a, a big track record of all sorts of uh, outstanding things in worldly terms. But it's very striking. I remind myself of the quote I'm borrowing here. Paul says of Timothy, I have no one like him. Yet Timothy is not known for his powerful personality or his great intellect. What he's known for He's looking out for other people who will show genuine concern for your welfare. And then he contrasts that with looking out for yourself, looking out for your own interests, advancing your own agenda. And he says, Timothy's not like that. His concern is simply that of Jesus Christ. And there may well be There, that Paul is critiquing the sorts of people who are active in Christian service, but essentially they make it about themselves. And so the words are right, but actually the attitudes are wrong. And it's basically about self. And there are some searching questions here for us as we think about the act of serving others. A former president of the United States used to say that he liked to put someone in an important job to see if the person grew or just swelled. And the writer adds, probably the most urgent virtue or grace that leadership needs is humility. The opposite, pride, is the greatest vice. It was said of one man, he can strut sitting down. And perhaps the most fundamental question we must ask ourselves is whose kingdom are we, build, are we building? The answer may seem obvious at the beginning, but it can become subtly less obvious as time goes on and we become more and more into a particular responsibility and taking charge of it and projecting ourselves and our own needs and our own ambitions into it. You cannot say, your kingdom come, until you've learnt to say, my kingdom Go. Well, Timothy had done that. And we notice some of the contributory factors to that. This selfless gospel service there. It says he's proved himself. This has been proven and tested over time. We think about appointing an elder. We look for someone who has a track record of service in other ways. There's that great principle we find in what uh, Jesus said, that if we're faithful with small things, it's then that we can be expected to be entrusted with uh, medium things and then with greater things. There is a progression there. One of the things we look for in staff members, you'll be looking for when you look for a new senior pastor, is just that sense of someone who's been proven and tested over time. Notice, too, his willingness to be shaped by another. As a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. The model there is of the son who's apprenticed to do uh, the work that the father was doing. So your father's a baker. You grow up to learn to be a baker in the ancient world. You learn from your father. It's interesting to me now that my son is in training for Christian ministry. But not training by me, training by others. And he's had people who've become that kind of spiritual father to him in a way that it's harder for a natural father to do, though sometimes that is the case. Well, for Timothy, it had been Paul. And he'd entered this relationship. And you know, so much of the way that Eden has contributed to its own growth and to the growth of the church uh, in our small way uh, internationally over the years has been the one-on-one nurture of younger people. Now, we have a big programme for that with the students, and many of you contribute to that. I just want to thank you for that this morning. You've been Paul to loads and loads of Timothys. Well done. Sometimes it's some sacrifice, sometimes it's some frustration, because students can be uh, strange and irregular and uh, just a bit weird at times. As, indeed, the senior pastors can be also. It happens with our young people as well. Some of you contribute there with our church secondary school students. I look back and think of those who've done that with my own children. I'm so grateful to you. Again, you were doing things that Debbie and I couldn't do for them at that point because of the complications of uh, natural parenthood. This is a wonderful work that Eden has deeply invested in. And we should take joy in the results of it. So we see that he's been tested, and we see that he's been ready to be shaped. And we see also that Timothy is ready to be at the disposal of others. Paul says, I'm going to send him to you. Timothy's ready to come. It's a long journey. We've been going away from Paul. There's a willingness to do what is required for the work of the gospel. Let's just pause for a moment. Remember the way that I've shaped this. But this is about finding joy. Think of those people that you can bring to mind who exemplify self sacrifice for the cause of Christ. And allow your heart to respond with joy, to that bringing them to mind. And then I want to draw it out a bit further. I don't believe this is imposing something upon the text, but it's drawing something out from the text. Because other people will be able to see your own self-sacrifice for the cause of Christ. And I want you to know that other people will be finding joy in that. And even beyond that, I want you to know that the Lord Jesus Christ himself sees your hidden or less hidden, acts and patterns of self-sacrifice for his cause. And if others find joy in that, how much more does he find joy in that? And how much more does he want you to find joy in his joy, in your sacrifice for him? And then we're set free to ask ourselves the question, what's the next step of sacrifice he's calling me to make? Well, as we think about that, and we'll pick that up when we think um, about Epaphroditus' sacrifice, we move on to this next section, which is about Epaphroditus. But I want to do something a little bit different with the first part of it. If you've been thinking about joy in God's work in people like Timothy... We think now about joy in God's work, in experiences like the ones that are described here. We've already had a bit of an account of this. I really think this is a remarkable passage. Let me read it again, and then we'll try and piece together what's happening. I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. "'For he longs for all of you and is distressed "'because you heard he was ill. "'Indeed, he was ill and almost died. "'But God had mercy on him, and not only on him only, "'but also on me, to spare me sorrow on sorrow. "'Therefore I am all the more eager to send him "'so that when you see him again, you may be glad "'and I may have less anxiety. "'So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy "'and honour people like him, "'because he almost died for the work of Christ.' He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. So if you try and reconstruct it, adding a little bit to what early gave us, the Philippians hear that Paul is in jail and he needs help. So they send Epaphroditus all the way from eastern Greece, most certainly to Rome, with a gift of money and, of course, the encouragement of him coming in person. And it may well be that Epaphroditus was one of the elders and leaders of the church. He certainly described in terms of leadership uh, there in verse 25. So he came and he gave the gift. But somehow along the way, or in Rome, he became ill. And actually became very seriously ill. And actually, it looked pretty dicey. Somehow the news about that got back to Philippi. And they were incredibly upset. Imagine us hearing that one of our mission partners... um, Uh, Some were unreachable, um, had a terminal illness or was possibly in a terminal-seeming state. Imagine how we would feel. They're terribly, terribly distressed. And somehow they managed to uh, get a message about that uh, to Paul and Epaphroditus uh, in Rome. And in turn, Epaphroditus, who you might think had other things on his mind, his now concern is all for the Philippians. He's worried about them. He doesn't want them to be sad. And at the same time, Paul is feeling pretty sad, and he's anticipating feeling even more sad that there will be sorrow upon sorrow for him if Epaphroditus dies. And of course, he's worried about the Philippians as well. And so Paul is relieved to be able to send Epaphroditus back with the letter so that the Philippians can be glad and encouraged again. And then he hopes to hear about that so that he too can be glad. Isn't it all just terribly human? Isn't this just what life is like, being parted from people, being anxious about them, people getting ill, being anxious about that, sending help to people of different kinds, trying to help, not having quite enough, so we use someone else to help? It's it's just a beautiful kind of triangle or web of relationships, and it is all so deeply human. Someone has said, there's a school of thought that seems to think we're only Christian when we've lost all natural feeling. But that's contradicted here. And the writer goes on to speak of someone feeling homesick when they're ill and away from home. As Epaphroditus seems to have been, and the people at home being worried, and he says, that's not sub-Christian. That's being human. Another writer focuses on Paul. And he says, here is a man who says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Someone who's ready to sacrifice everything for the sake of Christ. And yet who says, this dear brother of mine was desperately ill. I thought he was going to die. But not God not only had mercy on him, he had mercy on me too. Lest I should have sorrow upon Sorrow. He would have felt it grievously. It would have hurt him. He would have known what it was to feel that sense of loss and desolation. The Christian is never meant to be unnatural. Putting our sin to death doesn't mean putting to death the things that have been implanted in us by God. He made us human beings. It's the perverse things that are sin. Things that are noble and true all have their legitimate place in the Christian life. Paul knew what it was to be anxious about his dear brother, and he thanked God when his life was spared, so that he could be spared, sorrow upon sorrow. Let me read a little more. So here is the New Testament concern about human relationships, human temperaments, human affections, physical weaknesses, psychological weaknesses, All this mattered to the Apostle of Jesus Christ, and it matters to God. Not just that we believe the right doctrines and we keep the right rules, but that our our emotional life is important to him. When you become a Christian, it's not the end of your humanity, but rather the beginning of a newer, wiser, more sensitive humanity. We live our lives in the body with a body's affections and desires, dependencies, sensitivities, longings and passions. Becoming a Christian doesn't destroy that. And there's this wonderful dimension that means that it is different from going through these things, even in good relationships, as a non-Christian. And it is the mercy of God. And how much the life of our church, as I've been part of it, has been this this web of human need. People trying to help, not quite having enough, so someone else does a bit more, as it says in, in verse 30. And then someone getting ill and people being concerned and even the person who is ill being concerned for the others and the fear of sorrow upon sorrow and the desire to help and to express our humanity through these things. And again and again, the experience of God's mercy and help. And I think we can stand back and just find joy in the fact that we're not to cease being human, We're not to become stoical. We're not to assume that the emotional life is unimportant. We're not to set aside things like compassion and sensitivity and tenderness and empathy. We're to be drawn into those things, taking the kinds of emotional risks that come with them. As we relate together in a community of love, and then knowing God's mercy breaking through again and again. And again, again, let's take a moment and just pause and receive the joy God wants to give us. That our humanity is not abolished, but made more real in the community of the church. And that Christ's mercy is at the heart of it. And perhaps even bring to mind occasions where this has been real and true for you. Even perhaps where you are right now. And then perhaps to think of the people who have shown concern for us and tenderness and care for us and just feel the joy of recognizing that there are such folk, that we are part of that kind of community. And then to ask ourselves, what's the next step for me in showing God's mercy to others and receiving more of it from them? And from him. So an invitation to find joy in experiences like these. But then we do have to come back to Epaphroditus and to his great example, because I'm sure that Paul includes it for that purpose, and indeed all the more sure because of what he says in verse, uh, verse 29 that This is not just about Epaphroditus, but anyone like him. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honour, and honour people like him. So we are to recognise people like Epaphroditus and give them honour. What is it we particularly see in Epaphroditus? It is a willingness to go out of your way to serve someone else and to do so at the risk of significant personal cost. He put himself in danger's way. The illness does seem to have come as a result of uh, what he was doing. We don't know what it is. There's no point in speculating at all, though sometimes people have tried to do so. But undoubtedly, making this journey, there was a risk that happened to him that would not have happened to him at home. And because of that, as he comes back, Paul says, I want you to honour that. I want you to recognise that. And I want you, above all, just to do that in Christ and to do so with great joy. And to say, isn't it unbelievably wonderful that we know someone who has taken that kind of risk for Christ? The primary thing is not feeling sorry for him or feeling overawed or inadequate in relationship to him. It is just to say, in that situation, he was ready to, lev- to, to undergo that level of risk. And he, and he did so, and he almost died, and God did have mercy on him. And it is fantastic to know someone like that and to find the joy of observing that level of Christ- Christ-likeness. Now, it can seem a little bit unreal... Although I can think of members of this congregation, past and present, who've had to be evacuated from civil war situations, different parts of the world, at very, very short notice, because otherwise they might have died. I think of many people who've taken on in heroic ways burdens of support of others. And then I want to say that this, I think, goes beyond the kind of spectacular act of heroism. I think it applies to everyday patterns of quiet, repeated self-denial to serve others. And the extreme example of someone who on one mission almost died actually is the rarity. And what impresses me so much are everyday lives of people behaving with Christian, quiet Christian heroism to serve other people. And in almost every pastoral meeting I have with people, I've been recognising that this is going on. I'm wanting to notice it and to honour it. I love the way someone makes this uh, distinction. One question with which a Christian leader, but it's any Christian really, must confront himself or herself is, how will I spend my life? The spending may be in daily tasks faithfully performed for the good of others over years. Or the spending may be in a climactic moment of sacrifice on behalf of others that means literally the giving or risking of one's life. But both involve a posture for the kingdom. Both are becoming people like Epaphroditus. And let's start by thinking of those people that we know who in some way are like Epaphroditus. The leader who's given so much to support and encourage you. The Christian friend without whom you might not be here this morning. And actually you know there's a significant pattern of personal cost that enabled them to serve you that way. Within the life of this church, well, the life of this church would be impossible without people who are deeply committed to self-sacrificial service. And yes, it's not at the obvious risk of dying, but there is a dying to things that they might have done otherwise, perhaps to career advancement, perhaps to spending more money on themselves perhaps to having a range of hobbies and weekends away and all sorts of other things that would be more congenial. Some cost in their family lives as well, as is almost inevitable in church service. And some cost to family life is right in church service. It's, it's, it's the way that Christ's work happens and unfolds. These things are all around us in our church life. This is not a matter of us looking at Epaphroditus and me saying to the whole congregation, well, you're nowhere near Epaphroditus and you... You should do something incredibly dangerous and then you might have some hope of getting there. It's not how it works. It's not how the energy and intention of the text works. We find joy in the repeated acts of quiet but still heroic self-sacrifice that others make for us and for the life of our church. Let's spend a moment in that kind of appreciative inquiry. Bringing folk to mind and just being joyful about them. And then I want to say to you again, and this is going to sound a little similar, that there are people who are thinking about you here this morning. And I also want to say that there are things which you do, which in major or minor ways, one-offs or repeated patterns, are acts of heroic self-sacrifice for the gospel. There are things you do which other people don't fully see or see at all. And sometimes there's a part of you that wishes there was just a little bit more recognition of that. Sometimes it can even be difficult for you to see quite how heroic you are being in caring for others. And it just seems like this, um, this whole set of burdens and frustrations, especially when people are unappreciative, as happens to all of us at times. I want you to know that Christ sees it all. Every act every pattern everything and it gives him joy and he wants you know you to know his joy in you and you to feel joy in his joy in you. And it's with that background that we then ask ourselves the hard question. What's the next step? in my growth in Christ-like service. As a leader, who has on his desk in a frame the statement, Lord, please build your church at my expense. That was Epaphroditus. As it was Timothy, as it was Paul, as it was Christ himself, who did not please himself, but came to serve us what next in our service of him there's a line in that new song we've just learned which I felt right to close on his is the right to rule my life what's the next step of that happening for you Let's be still and think about that for a moment. Father, you've touched us this morning, and we do pray that the joy that you've released in us, would stay with us. And that while we leave with that sound of challenge ringing in our ears, it may be with a sense of joy as we look at others and realise that if it could be them, it could be us. Joy in your joy in what you've already done in us. And joy at the thought that embracing the next step of Christian discipleship, though hard, will itself bring joy to self and others and you. In Jesus' name, amen.